You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Onyx Maps. Now, if you haven't had the opportunity to get Onyx Maps on your phone, you need to get Onyx Maps on your phone, and I'm going to tell you why. Number one, I am the kind of guy who likes to know where I'm at at all times, and I like to do a lot of running and gunning. So there's times where access is very important for me, knowing where I was at, knowing how to get to a specific location, especially in the dark of morning or night, getting in and getting out. And the best part for me is that I have GPS on my phone, and Onyx allows you to leave basically breadcrumbs uh, and leave a trail or your access routes on your phone, save those access routes, and then use your GPS going in and out of your tree stand locations every single day. And it's awesome because you won't get lost in the dark. And I use that so much, that little portion in itself, so much throughout the season that uh, it's probably the most useful function of that app. Now, you can also leave waypoints like where your trail cameras are at, where your tree stands are at, where you see scrapes and rubs or marking trailheads or campsites. This is the perfect app for a do-it-yourself hunter. I mean, really for all hunters, because it allows you to journal your properties that you hunt, right? And uh, the more information you have, the more successful you will be on a yearly basis because you keep gathering data and gathering data and gathering data. And soon you'll see trends in that data and those trends will lead you to hunting more efficiently and becoming more successful, in my opinion. So go to Onyx or wherever you download your apps, pick up Onyx and you can use the discount code NATION20, N-A-T-I-O-N 20, and save 20% off for first-time users. Onyx Maps. This is a Houndsman XP podcast with your host, Steve Fielder, and me, Chris Powell. If you're ready to up your game to extreme performance, sit back, buckle up, and hang on for another exciting episode of Houndsman XP. Houndsman XP Nation, we are taking you west of the Big Muddy to Idaho, Pocatello, Idaho, to meet with Kevin Hall. You've seen his brand on social media, Dogs Are Treed and Plot Dog, and Kevin is a lifelong breeder of the Plot Hound. Kevin is uh, going to share his story with us about hunting the uh, Rocky Mountains and in pursuit of the long walker right now if you go to dogsartree.com you can receive 20 percent off with the the uh, checkout code hxp20 and if you do that you're going to support this podcast 
by entering that code and then dogs are treed are going to donate 10 percent of all sales back to the houndsman xp podcast so make sure you go to dogs are treed at dogsartreed.com all of your breed swag is there black and tan english red bone walker whatever you're hunting they have a breed for you we also want to give a shout out to calvin red house friend of houndsman xp podcast make sure you're checking out him on social media at res hounds and book your bucket list lion hunt with him hunt in an epic place on the navajo nation you'll never find anywhere that you can hunt that is going to bring back memories like the the navajo nation in northeast arizona northwest new mexico make sure you're checking out res hounds also i want to uh give a shout out to first light i've been wearing these sog buck pants now for uh several months chasing these hounds but this week you're going to see a uh, video compilation or an update on social media about their performance with coyote trapping i'm telling you what these things are like wearing pajama pants they're tough they're comfortable they stretch in every direction and uh, they are the absolute epitome of comfort and protection for the houndsman so check out first light hunting apparel at firstlight.com and order your pair of sawbuck pants today they've got the uh, dwr four-way stretch and they've got some really cool cordura type material on the front that protects you from those briars and things that poke you so check out first light hunting without any further delay let's get in this conversation with kevin hall and listen to his story about chasing the long walker in eastern idaho welcome to the houndsman xp podcast steve is still on sabbatical as we record this he has become a uh, member of the coon hunting navy down in the white river national wildlife refuge coon hunting on his annual uh, trip down there with all his buddies i guess they've got a lot of water and uh, it's hard to get around so they've taken to a flotilla of coon hunting john boats so hence the name coon hunting navy but today we have got a treat for our listeners we have got kevin hall of idaho uh, longtime hunter plot breeder uh, runs a uh, a brand called Dogs Are Treed. You've probably seen that on social media. He's an author. He's been involved in uh, uh, writing a series called The Long Walker, and he's participated in Lion Studies. Just a really interesting guy. How are you today, Kevin? Good morning, Chris. I'm doing great today. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. What's your? Uh, I'm me, and, me and Steve always talk about the weather. What kind of weather are you hitting out there in Idaho these days? November has been absolutely gorgeous. It's been uh, typical. It's been warm and sunny. Uh, now, October was unseasonably cold. We had actually that came out and they said that October was the coldest October on record since they've been keeping records for the month. We had uh, sub-zero temperatures, actually, in wow. October. 
But yeah. but November hit, and it's just been gorgeous. It's highs in the 50s and lows in the 20s. And wow, that's no about like our weather right now. It's just perfect. Yeah, real enjoyable. Now, December's coming, and we're going to need some snow for lion hunting. Right, but right. But we'll wait till December for that. When did you guys get nice. when did you guys get hit with that um, freak snowstorm? I was talking to my wife about that the other day, and we we're trying to remember when that happened. The tail end of September, yeah, right at the end yeah. of September, there was snow, and Montana really got it bad. Right, but yeah, the end of September, and then around mid October, we had uh, when California was getting all those high winds. We we got it too, and there were fifty mile an hour winds all weekend long, and cold temperatures and yeah, that was quite a weather event, actually, for here. Yeah. What part of Idaho are you in? I'm in southeast Idaho. Yeah. Just outside of Pocatello. That's what I was yeah. thinking. That's what I was thinking. Well, hey, um, yeah. tell us about, tell us about, uh, we, we talk a lot about plots on our podcast. Steve and I are both, Steve's a plot historian. <clears throat> really wish he could be here to, to talk to you about this, because I know that he could, could uh, add a lot to this conversation with you but uh, i think i first became aware of you through the uh, american plot association uh maybe a yearbook i'd seen an ad or or maybe an article that that was written in that about you and your plots does that sound familiar it does yeah it does well i started out with coon hounds my dad was um, my dad got into hounds when I was 12 years old. So that puts it back to 1971, 72. And he started with some, uh, oh, he had a walker and a blue tick and a black and tan, a little bit of everything that uh, he got from local hunters. And um, he wanted to be a lion hunter. And so uh, he dabbled in lion hunting for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, um, and then I got, uh, you know, I got the itch from that. And as I progressed into my early adulthood and was hunting on my own, I just inherited the dogs that he wasn't using anymore and was going at it with that. And um, I didn't have a whole lot of success. Uh, Between my inexperience and lack of knowledge with how to hunt lions and and a a lower uh, population of lions at the time, and then I'd find a track and the dogs didn't know what to do with it. It was just a bad combination of Mm -hmm. things going on. And I struggled. And I struggled, and my dad um, had befriended a guy named Richard Smith in Salmon, Idaho, Doc Smith. And uh, he said, geez, you got to call Doc and uh, see what his thoughts are on, on lion hunting, and, and maybe yeah. he'd take you. And so I did, and uh, I called him up, and he, he invited me to come up and go on a couple of lion hunts with him, just so I could see what he does, you know. And he was pretty much doing the same thing I was doing as far as searching for a track. But when it came time to put a dog on it, that was a whole nother world. And yeah. Doc was a big time plot guy. And he had actually started the same way. He had come to Idaho from California and brought with him coon hounds. Uh, and, uh, but wasn't having much success in the bear hunting world around salmon. And um, uh, at some point got hooked up with Blair Harrington from Northern Idaho and got some plots from Blair. And Blair's plots were white hollow and swampland type breeding. Mm-hmm. So Doc got the the itch for that, and he actually went back to plot days and met with uh, Vaughn Plot and and several and Leroy Hogg and yeah. um, Dennis Paulson and several of the big breeders at the time. 
and you gotta you gotta remember this is late 60s early 70s you know so this is pre-internet of course sure it is and 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 early early full cry days you know the the ways that we all communicated back then were so primitive compared to what we have now <laughs> we're not they, so we, you didn't have conversations on skype with breeders on the other side of right. the country yeah 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 and so but doc put all this together and made a trip back there you know and and decided that hog swamp Joe was the dog that he wanted to breed to and he mm-hmm. did he sent his best female back to and uh, but anyway, uh, the dogs were, it was just an entirely different level of dogs than anything that I had seen, and so and naturally I um, I got some dogs from him, and um, uh, and he told me you need to get a hold of Leroy Hogg and get some dogs from Leroy, and I did. <laughs> Within a year, Leroy sent me a couple of dogs, and uh, and that's where it all got started. And it just changed the game. It just changed the game. You had a dog that just naturally knew what it was doing. Yeah, and, we just uh, talk- it just made a world of difference. We just talked to Mike Colley a, a couple of weeks ago uh, on the podcast, and I've known Mike for years. Steve, of course, has known Mike for several years, if decades. Um, but Steve, or, I'm sorry, Mike. Mike talked about getting his start with the Swampland dogs. So some of the hounds, yeah. you know, some of the plots well. that I'm hunting here, just hunted them last night. As a matter of fact. Uh, share some common ancestry of course the the plot breed is so small if you go back far enough we we can all find common ancestry but uh that's yeah that's that's exciting there was a dog that you got named uh bluff creek yeah bluff creek toto creek toto yeah where did that dog come from without talking about that well um through my plot connections, I met uh, Kevin Allred from the Burley, Idaho, Southern Idaho. Mm-hmm. And Kevin and Ken Jaffick had been involved in a lion study with Idaho State University. This study went 18 years. It was a big deal. It went a long time, and no he was kidding. involved in it from the start. Yep, yep, radio collaring lions and then tracking them with telemetry and uh, year-round. And, um, and he was a plot fancier. And he had some of the swampland dogs as well. But he needed a colder-nosed dog. Uh, and, and so he did his research out and um, had determined that the Bluff Creek dogs were the dogs that he needed. There was the coldest-nosed plot. Mm-hmm. And so he, uh, he'd uh, uh, made connections with Steve Hurd and, and had a dog coming. And uh, he called me up, and he says, hey, he says, he's got another one, too. He says, uh, if, if, if you want, he says, he can ship us two of them in the same crate. We'll split the shipping. You know, and I'm like, well, all right, sounds good. Right. <laughs> so, so that's how that started. And uh, out of that box comes Bluff Creek Toto, and uh, his was named Snake River Rita. Okay. And, uh, and there was nothing like, uh, I, they were five months old at the time. So, and this was summer, you know, so we packed him around bear hunting and whatnot, but, you know, nothing much happened that first year. But that first fall, he caught his first lion by himself when he was 11 months old, mm. and we ended up catching 18 that year, and on many of them, he was he was leading the pack. He was just had such an uncanny tracking ability that uh, he just smoked our other dogs, and our other dogs were good dogs. Right. But he was just at another level himself as far as a trailing dog. And uh, oh, he had quite a career. Yeah, he he was an amazing dog. He he pulled off so many hunts that, uh, but we didn't even talk a lot about it. Um, 
he was never promoted at the time. And part of that was selfish reasons, I guess. We didn't want other people to have dogs like that. <laughs> <laughs> and on the other hand of it, um, there was a lot of stories that people just probably wouldn't believe. They had, a, they had, they had called us out on the story because they didn't, they never seen anything like that and didn't think the dogs were capable of doing things like that. Well, let, let, me, so let me ask just, you this real just, quick. We talk about it a lot. Let me ask you this. Do you have any regrets of not promoting him now? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's kind of one of the reasons I've, I've started promoting dogs and got a bit more into being more open and vocal about my own dogs is because I wish more people had dogs like that. You know, I wish I could have shared more of that. Now, at this point, of course, I'm at a different point in my hunting career now than I was then. But, yeah, I wish there were more of them out there. And you know, I'll tell you, there's some. The, one, advantage, the biggest advantage of, uh, of him to me was um, I've been out of dogs twice throughout my life for a couple of years at a time due to different life circumstances. But I went right back. When I got back into it, I was able to go right back to people in some cases, buying dogs back that I'd previously sold, or in other cases, getting a puppy back from my bloodline mm-hmm. and just picking right up where I left off. And it's like an unbroken line now when you look at it, but there was certain breaks in it. But uh, there was a tremendous advantage to me of having my dogs spread out, you know, around the region to where I could, I could reach out and get some of them back. Well, so, I, want to, I want to come back to your breeding because you've been into it for a long time. I want to talk more about that, but, but, Let's go back to, you know, I've got kind of a sideline story and can relate to that feeling that, that of wanting to promote the breed or capture that. There's been three different times in my hound career that I found dogs that people had that uh, were special and um, knew that they, they needed to be in the limelight to make an impact on the breed. And they were just exceptional hounds. One was a plot female that uh, uh, a friend of mine bought as a puppy. She was phenomenal. She was a natural. One of the hardest, um, one of the most stylish, classy tree dogs you ever saw from the plot. Um, and we did just that. We, I, I ended up getting her from from my friend and and. Uh, I never wanted to be a competition hunter. I I did that out of, I, I have to back up. I did want to be a competition hunter, but I found out that I really didn't enjoy it. And, but I felt obligated to take these dogs and put them out there where people could see them to benefit the breed. That's kind of been my motivation and, uh, mm-hmm. over the years. And then of course there's big country. Um, Donnie Walston was the original owner of our bi- the big country blue tick male that's taken the the competition world by storm and uh, kind of the same deal Donnie was at a point in his life where he had this phenomenal dog but he ha- also had a young family and building a house and uh, my other female came in heat and I needed something to hunt, so I sh- shamed Donnie into letting me let me take big country and hunt him while he was building his house. So I, I think it's just important that th- – that's why I asked you that question, Kevin, was was if you had any regrets of, of doing that. But you've been able to go back and capitalize on that blood now. So And you've been doing that for – you've been breeding 
the same line of plots or been involved in plot breeding for how many years? Yeah, for 35 years. Yeah, with the same line of dogs. Yeah, I go back eight generations with the dogs. I've been breeding them myself for five. And then I go back another uh, three generations with dogs that I either hunted with or, 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 you know, were owned by a friend of mine or, you know, that I've got a, a connection to. Mm-hmm. So eight dog generations goes back a long ways. And that means really nothing other than I've been at it a long time. <laughs> well, you've been successful so, too, though. Um, I have, but I want, I can't let that go without saying it's not without help from other people. Um, uh, Steve Sherrick and Otto Falls, Jerry Myers, Darius Martin, to name a few. Um, you don't, you don't survive this game without good friendships and good relationships with other people. Uh, in my experience, it, uh, it only enhances it, the, the whole hound hunting relationship, but it makes it possible. You know, so many things just wouldn't have been possible without those guys. So some of the most I successful, let the opportunity. Yeah. To let yeah. That slip. Yeah. Some of the most successful people that have breeding programs, it's almost like, uh, it is, it's team effort. These guys develop, start developing, uh, dogs that have special gifts or special talents. And you just simply can't hunt them all. You've got to have right. people who are willing to put those dogs in the woods day after day, give you real evaluations of what they're doing, and um, ultimately, you know, be a team player in this thing. Absolutely. Yeah, you just can't keep that many dogs yourself and, and hunt them out. Um, unless you're doing it full time, you know, but, but most of us are working for a living as well. And right. so it definitely you know, takes that collaboration. So tell us about your, but yeah, running. but it goes back. At, uh, oh, go ahead. No, you go ahead. You, you finish up your thought there, Kevin. No, it just takes, I was just, uh, just going to elaborate more on that. It just takes, it just takes that collaboration. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So tell us about um, your hunting there in uh, Southeast Idaho. It's a good place to be a lion hunter. Uh, not so much for bear. Now, you'd think for bear anywhere in Idaho would be good, but that's not the case. Um, the bear population, of course, there's higher density in some parts of the states than others, and southeast Idaho, where I'm at, is not one of the higher bear density areas, and it's not roaded particularly well. So baiting um, is, is one of the main um, methods that are used for bear hunting in southeast Idaho. Um, um, surprisingly, I've got to travel quite a ways. I mean, the closest place for me that's a decent place to bear hunt is two and a half hours away. Mm-hmm. And it's not uncommon for me to pack up and go across the state for three or four days at a time, seven hours away to bear hunt. So, um, that's, uh, that's kind of what the bear hunting's like from here, but, uh, but there is decent lion hunting right around this area and we can hunt lions and bears and bobcats and raccoons. So, there's a little bit of everything. You can pretty much hunt year-round with your dogs here. There's only like one month out of the year that there's not something you could hunt. So we've got it pretty good that way. And you're, you're traveling across the state seven hours away. Uh, your plots travel well. Uh, it seems like that line of dogs that you're developing is, is performing well in different conditions. They perform well. Yeah, we needed a multi-purpose dog. Uh, um, I remember when I was growing up, a lot of guys had bear dogs and then they had their lion dogs and then they had their coon dogs. But 
I don't have enough room for all that. My dogs right. need to be a multi-purpose dog. They need to do a little bit of everything well. And with the line that I got into, they just naturally do that well. Mm-hmm. It, it is always interesting um, when you switch from bear hunting to lion hunting. There's always a transition. Those first few lion hunts can be a little rough because the dogs want to run the lion track like they've been running bear tracks all, you know, during the rest of the year. They want to run it heads up and fast. Mm-hmm. And the dog has to be able to, to, to understand what's going on and change gears and slow down and start being a bit more methodical about a cold lion track. And some adapt to that better than others, but you figure that out real quick. Um, so that, you know, that's, that's part of the multi-purpose aspect of it. Even your, but, old, um, even your older hunting, dogs. I can do lion hunting. Um, pardon me. Even your older dogs, uh, take a little more time to transition. It seems like every, every season you got to got it. They got to learn to shift gears oh, a little bit. Yep. A little bit. Yep. The older ones pick it up a lot quicker than the others, but, uh, yep. Yep. How many yeah, they have to make that shift as well. So by the time, by the time, what, what age do you start your, your young dogs on actual game? on on uh lion tracks or bear tracks there's not a set number or a set age it just depends on the dog and what it's ready for and what's going on at the time you know if it's a litter that's born in the spring you can start them that next that next winter on lions Mm -hmm. now the dog might not be doing a lot but you can certainly pack it along with you so it's getting some experience Mm -hmm. and whatnot so um, and some dogs are just, just ready for it quicker than others. You just have to be able to read the dog and decide if it's ready or not. Uh, and if, if you don't think it is, you lay it off for a month and then pick it up and, and try again and see what happens. But uh, most of the time, as soon as they're able to, to pack along with you, they go. Mm-hmm. And, and I'll just turn them loose and let them go. I've had dogs at five months old make bear races. Now, they're short races or the dog got there really late, you know, right. <laughs> I'm not saying it was doing yeah. a good job uh, by any means, but it made it. He was doing uh, the best he I could do. One. He was doing the best he could do. I remember <laughs> I had one. It was funny because I had like four dogs at the tree and a pup and he was just five months old and, uh, and a clueless pup at the tree, of course. And, and it came time to lead away and it was on a, on a steep hill. And so I had, I had to lead the dogs up a ways and tie a couple off and come back and get a couple more and lead them up. And as I'm leading up the second set of dogs, um, the bear came out of the tree and the pup was loose. And so he saw the whole thing, right. You know, five yeah. feet in front of him and, and the bear took off down the hill and away he went running it. And I tracked him and he ran up for like 400 yards and stopped and turned around and came back, you know, but, uh, so they'll start early, but it, ha- it was a great experience for him. I asked you, you know, that so question. Just having a dog there can, can, you know, make a difference in a dog's life. Just being out there. Exactly. You know, I asked so. you that question on purpose because we often see these questions on social media. It used to be the message boards. Now it's social media. Facebook's easy. I can yeah. get on on my phone. At what age should I start my dog? And uh, we just interviewed uh, a, a professional bird dog trainer who's also a houndsman. I think it's going to add a lot of value to uh, – we're going to do a series of training uh, podcasts with this guy. And uh, I think it, I think people want this – silver bullet you know magic that what age do i start my dog and there just isn't one no you know a lot of the times what i see in young dogs is 
I see the I see those natural instincts and abilities. They may not know what they're doing with them at the time, but if if you if you've handled dogs enough or if you you're patient enough with them, you can start to see these these traits come out in them where you know that if they pull it all together, then it's going to be it's going to be good. And that's what keeps that's the way I evaluate pups anymore. I don't worry about if they treed their first coon or they made their first race or they did this or they did this by that by a certain age. You know, I look at the individual traits and know that and then I take all of them and I weigh them and if the, if if I think that that's going to be all stuff that's going to be beneficial to them later in life and I'm patient and they pull that all together, then I know I'll have something I can use. I think one of the keys is to get a well-bred dog to start with and know kind of what you're getting before you even start. Because, oh, I mean, I'm not, I can, I can't say that every single one of these dogs makes a good dog, but gosh, it's like 90%, you know, make a good usable dog. And there's, there's several that just float to the top and they're dog of a lifetime type dogs. And, and my training has evolved to uh, actually very minimal training. Um, I just hunt them. Um, I'll, I'll spend a lot of time with puppies, teaching them to come, you know, and uh, just basic handling things, you know, you know, loading in and out of boxes and, mm-hmm. and, and coming when they're called, you know, and doing a little foundation deer breaking and stuff. But um, now it used to be a big layer of drags. I would lay drags for miles and miles on yeah. foot. Uh, over and over and over for these dogs and they learned how to run a drag real good but um and 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 there's definitely value in that to develop those instincts in a young dog when when maybe uh you, you know a hunting season isn't available or something but uh by and large just um getting the, a well-bred dog and uh teaching him those handling fundamentals and exposing him to the hunt in real time is all these dogs need and um it's worked out real well. So do you, do you yeah, think, I don't know that there's a certain age. Mm-hmm. Do you think some of that is based on the fact that you, you've been involved with this same line of dogs for so long? So you know what to expect? Because I'll, I'll share a little bit of something here. You know, I've been hunting a different breed, and then I end up with these two two Bayou Cajun plots from Mike Colley. And I've kind of had to pump the brakes a little bit and – readjust myself back to a different style of dog and trying to figure out how to how to be most effective with training that dog so do you think that a lot of your success is coming from the fact that you're you're familiar you know what the you know what you bred for you know uh what you should have on the other end how is that affecting your your training training now oh it definitely has a role in it because just as you said, you, you, you know what to expect and you know what you bred for and uh, you recognize it when you see it. Um, now, there's, there's been times when uh, on one of my go-arounds when I had to start over that um, I'd picked up, uh, like I said, dogs from other places of the same breeding, but some of them hadn't been hunted as much and they were a little bit older. And uh, um, I had to start by walking down lion tracks again. You know, it wasn't automatic. Mm-hmm. I was walking down line. Here I was, oh, geez, um, 56 years old at the time. And I, I'm walking down lion tracks because my dogs don't know what to do with it for sure. Um, but 
they picked it up quickly and you know and those same dogs are, are doing well now mm-hmm. but um but uh definitely uh um um the breeding and knowing what to expect is is huge um so what, I, I see a lot of guys uh oh, go ahead i was just going to say so so a person comes to you says kevin i'd like to have you know a pup out of your line of of plots um maybe you don't sell pups but you're you're you know you you've got a guy that that uh you would like to get a pup in their hands what should that what are you telling that person they should be looking for in that pup what sort of traits would signify your line of plots well you're gonna get a dog that looks good it's gonna have good confirmation for one thing the dog's going to have ability, and you're probably going to see a smarter dog than maybe what you were used to before. Mm-hmm. Um, um, you're going to see a dog that is gamey and willing to mix it up. Um, you're going to see a dog that's hyper uh, and maybe uh, a bit hard to handle around the house um, as far as maybe barking mm-hmm. more than you would like or um um or or jumping up and down or pulling at the leash or just um dogs high energy dogs a column yeah you're gonna see that um which i like in a dog because when it gets down to that you know when i'm on my long trips and i'm on the third day of a of a three-day hunt you know you need dogs that are up on their feet and dancing around and ready to go and uh you know, there's there's a flip side to that, but uh, sometimes around the house when they've been sitting around for a couple of weeks, they get a bit hyper. But uh, yeah, you're going to get a high energy dog. Um, <laughs> you're going to get um, good. A, a hard tree dog. Mm-hmm. You're going to get a hard tree dog. I'd like to um, think that they uh, one of the things the Bluff Creek dogs added was uh, a locating ability, which is I think really an overlooked trait in the dog world, but. Once you've had a couple of extreme locators, it changes everything. You're catching more game than you than you were before because they're finding them. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I would say, at the same time, be patient with the dog. If the dog isn't doing everything you want at a year old, don't get down on that dog. Hang on to it because so many times I've seen in that. 14 months to 16 month old range, you know, right at a year and a half, things change on a dime. You know, Mm -hmm. it's either that one experience like, Hey, today he clicked, you know, or a series of experiences that just changes. And, and it's a combination of the experiences and the maturity of the dog, both physically and mentally, things are really coming together right at about, you know, 14 to 18 months. Um, I would say, don't get down on the dog early hang on to that dog because <clears throat> because his parents did it and the parents before him did it and his parents before him did it you know and i've seen them all so um to stick with it so yeah I, w- I want to talk about locating. some of the things that tell a guy i'd like to talk mm-hmm. about locating ability a little bit um that that piqued my interest right there when you said locating ability so is the area you're hunting you guys looking at you guys looking at uh big let me turn my phone down here. Got a little technical difficulties. Um, so the type of area you're hunting, are you looking at, at big, tall timber? 
or majority of the time yes mm-hmm. okay. for bears mm-hmm. yep yeah we're looking at big trees huge trees yeah i mean 200 300 foot trees with big ponderosas mm-hmm. yeah so it's not and like, you're hunting in the summertime when it's warm and so when you get like a hot day and and your tree but but maybe it's you know past 10 o'clock in the morning that the bare tree and the thermals have all shifted from coming to sinking to the bottom of the canyons in the morning and now the the thermals have shifted and they're all rising up and maybe this bear treed out ahead of the dogs quite a ways, you know, and, and the track just ends and the bears up a tree a long ways and the thermals are drifting the scent straight out the top of the tree. Those are tough ones to locate on really tough. Cause that scent's not coming right down to the ground. It's going the other way. So the dog has to recognize that that track ended here and there's a bear here somewhere. I just got to find it. And, 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 and that's a, it's at that point that a lot of dogs just overrun the track and just keep right on going or they quit and they backtrack themselves back to the road or whatever. Um, it's at that point that the, the smart locating dog stops and figures it out. Right. Right. And that I, makes a huge difference. I picked up a, I picked up a trick and it's something I'm not, uh, when I, when you talk about thermals and, and what sin is actually doing, there's something so easy out there for people to pick up. And I learned it from uh, my buddy, Larry Anderson over in Dillon, Montana. Um, he carries your standard scent checker, little puff bottle, he carries that with him mm-hmm. while he's yeah. hunting. And, you know, I've oh. always, I've always been out there looking at, you know, crumpling up leaves and trying to, and exhaling to see which way my breasts that you know the vapor on my breasts going so i understand what it's doing and larry's standing over there with this puff bottle he's like oh the thermals are moving downhill or the thermals are moving up so that was that was a neat little gadget and i've invested in those myself and and just so i understand what the scent is doing at the time well that's a great idea he's probably an elk hunter and had that he in his pocket from from elk season <laughs> and then he figured out he yep. could transition that over to hound hunting yep, yep. Larry's, larry's pretty yep. sharp yeah that's a good idea in yep. fact i've got a toto story that uh it goes back to locating so i'll just tell you about that one now yeah um i got several toto stories but this was one where there was uh oh the snow wasn't real deep you know it was maybe cast deep you know it wasn't bad and um i'd cut a track at the rim of this big draw that that went down and away from us and uh the track was partially snowed in but i think it'd been made the night before but i I turned him loose on it he took the track and we fed other digs on uh, dogs in on it and what the cat had done was it had it crossed down into the bottom and walked all the way out the bottom of this long draw about a mile and then it climbed up the opposite side it worked its way along the ridge on the opposite side back toward us and it dropped right back down into the bottom again it got in its own tracks for about 50 yards and then it climbed up a tree and bedded down so the dogs are running this track down the draw and at some point toto hits it where it was now a double track the cat was in its own track and Mm. so it was much stronger for about 50 yards and then and then the cat's in a tree but the track continues on and so the dog, the race goes down the canyon, all the way down the canyon, and we're listening to dogs. But yet, total street right down there. Well, mm-hmm. What the heck? And so, and as we walk on down there, we see where this track came into the, to itself, back into its own tracks. 
and all the other dogs went down to the bottom and they made the turn and up to the side and, and they, they all made the race, but they just took the long way. But the point of it was that Toto recognized that for about 50 yards there, this is different. This scent stronger. And he stopped, even though he still had a track continuing on past the tree, he stopped and came back when all the other dogs pressured him away and he came back and located on it. Yeah. Uh, that just gets back to the intelligence part of it. And, and it could be, well, he was the first dog down through there too. So he had an advantage, mm-hmm. you know, cause he was the first dog and whatever, you know, but, but he did it. And, uh, and that was a good one. That was a good one. I think it's, so, I think yeah, it's there cool. Is, there's you... a lot to locating. I think it's cool that you took the time to, you know, dissect that whole situation. And now you've got, now you know more about your dog. You know, the lion walked back, yep. walked back in its own track, you know, look right. at the whole picture. I mean, that's, that's what that epitomizes a houndsman right there. You know, why did my dog do this? And why right. did these other dogs right. do this? And you, you boil it down until you, you come up with something that, that's feasible there that you can wrap your mind around. Well, and I've talked before about uh, process versus outcome. And, um, and I'm a process guy. You know, how it happens is important. Mm-hmm. Uh, for some, just the fact that you're out there and you've got a truckload of dogs and you're doing this thing, um, they're, they're happy with that. And, and I'm happy with that, too. But I enjoy the process of how it's working and why it's working and, and breaking down minute things, you know, small aspects of it, taking different dimensions of the sport apart and dissecting it into something that makes sense to me. Do you ever and, overthink uh, it? I Probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because I'm a, I am a process guy, too. And sometimes I find myself yeah. overthinking things. I just... Yeah. 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 <laughs> Just turn them loose. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. I probably do. But you know, to the point, Kevin, to the point where there was a time when, when I wasn't, I was so interested in the process and trying to figure all that out that I wasn't pleasurable to hunt with. Because everybody else, a lot of the people I hunted with were just there to have a good time. And I was so mm-hmm. intense that that uh, I kind of took away some of the values of the hunt. Um, and so I've, I, I guess I'm learning to be a little more accepting and, and um, just worry about the things that I can control. But... Maybe it's easier because because I've done it so long now that I can I can pick up the process easier than I used to, but I was pretty intense to hunt with and and uh, you know was so into the dogs that a lot of time I sacrificed relationships. Yeah, I'm pretty sure people that I've hunted with in the past would say the same about me, probably. But we have, but now we have the experience to know. And right. Ba- and a balance. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, hey, you mentioned lion studies. And um, when we talked before, and you you mentioned them here, you've been involved in a few lion studies. Been involved in a few lion studies, and it's interesting work. If you can, if you get an opportunity, if you're out there and you get a chance to do something like that, you should do it. Um, the first one was that study that I, referred to before with uh, Kevin Allred and that 
ISU study, and, and I wasn't a major role player in that at all. I just kind of tagged along at the tail end of it all. But um, but it gave me some exposure to what was going on there. And then uh, uh, shortly after that one ended, um, one of our local biologists, well, this was mid-90s, and the lion population was really exploding across the West. Mm-hmm. And uh, they wanted to kind of get a grip on how many lions are there because they didn't know. And so it was just a census study is all it was. And so um, uh, we'd go out to biologists and collar lions. And uh, over a two-year period, we got 19 collars out, which we thought was yeah. pretty good. Yeah. Um, within two years after that, they were all dead or gone, though. They'd either all been shot or their collars had quit working or they were just had left the country. Uh, so it kind of fizzled out because we couldn't really keep up with the mortality and the loss. They were losing mm-hmm. collars. <laughs> yeah. But um, we learned a lot of interesting things along the way. Um, there was another one where uh, one of the grad students that was helping us at the time, he wanted to continue it. And so he got authority to continue it. And he, uh, and I got to get this straight. His, he was doing a paper on, um, he wanted to determine the amount of times the lions use cover when they're stalking their prey in proportion to the amount of cover available. And so he, we would call our lions and then he could go out with telemetry and kind of figure out where they were and he could track them down and he was measuring the brush and the density of the brush and where mm. the lion was walking and, and whatnot. And uh, I don't know, it worked out good for him, you know, so we, we helped him out with that. Um, there was a bigger study that came along. It was um, a mule deer mortality study uh, by a biologist named Mark Hurley. And that was a pretty big deal because at this time, this is late 90s, and deer populations were struggling. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were trying to get a grip on why. And part of their focus was determining the exact amount of predator impact on mule deer fawn survival rate. And so they took a couple of adjacent units, units, uh, uh, you know, fishing game, hunting units. They were side by side, just a highway down the middle, marking the difference. And on one side, they didn't change any of their management at all. They had just a general season on lions and they just, uh, coyotes were just hunted like coyotes normally are nothing special. They just Mm -hmm. left it neutral. On the other side, they tried to remove as many predators as possible. They liberalized the lion season to try to encourage as much mountain lion harvest as they could. And then they did aerial gunning of um, coyotes Okay. to a big extent to re- remove the predator footprint in that area. And then they collared mule deer and uh, with the focus on fawns. And then they could monitor the fawns over the next few years to see what the mortality rate was on the fawns based uh, off the predation. And what they found was it didn't make a heck of a lot of difference. There was not a significant difference in the amount of fawns killed by predators in either side, really? so, which was interesting. And, I, and it really wasn't what the commission wanted to hear. Right. <laughs> they were hoping that, ah, oh, we're going to prove it. It's those darn lions. If we kill every lion, we're going to have more deer. Right. Is what they wanted to get out of it, but they didn't because it didn't prove out that way. Um, and so... Uh, well, the study sur- went by the wayside, but uh, and it was it was an interesting project, you know, to be part of that one. On the surface, you would think that that would be effective because a, a deer's home range is considerably smaller than a lion's home range, so you can't actually have something like a a road as a boundary. 
Yeah, deer's deer's not going to migrate into into uh, uh, their home ranges are just smaller. So you've got a constant. I know there's some some wildlife migration corridors and different things during when the when the food changes and stuff like that. But but overall, I mean, you would think that that would that would be a safe bet if you were going to invest money in something. I could see how. You could sit, you know, a biologist could sit back and say, aha, we've got it. We're going to prove it. And then, bang, nothing. Right, because it's hard to tell. The, the, the bottom line is a deer is born, it lives, and it dies. Uh, what causes that death can be a variety of things, whether mm-hmm. it's a predator or a car or starvation or hung up in a fence or a train or whatever it might be. Um, most of them don't make it. And... And, um, and, and if there's a lot of deer, the lions are going to kill, you know, you get always get the question, well, how many deer does a lion kill? Well, and it's all proportional to the number of deer that are available. You know, in years where there's not very many deer, the lions don't kill that many. They shift to something else, porcupines or skunks or Mm -hmm. foxes or coyotes or elk or moose, whatever else is available. They'll shift to that in years or places where they're, where deer are extremely abundant, then lions are going to kill more deer just because of the opportunities available. But, um, you know, you hear the comment that, um, well, if you kill a lion, you're going to save 50 deer. But that's not true because uh, one year they, they raised the quota. They, they, we used to have a quota on lions in this area for, for a number of years, and then they just eliminated it completely. And uh, it went back to a general season. That first year of the general season, there were over 100 lions killed in this region, uh, this corner of the state. And mm-hmm. I was shocked. I, I would have never thought there was even 100 lions out there uh, walking around, let alone could you harvest 100 of them. Right. And uh, it was pretty shocking. That there was more lions out there than we thought. Uh, but now if, if you use that 50 deer per year theory, then then there should have been. Um, 5,000 more deer standing out there the next year right. and the year after that. But there wasn't, there wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't the magic pill. Even after killing a hundred lions, deer didn't bounce right back. Uh, so I don't know. There's just, it's, it's a complex subject and an issue. And, and there's a lot of factors that go into all that. But um, that was the focus of that study. As houndsmen, we share very unique needs when we make a decision to relocate especially when it comes to finding a hound-friendly environment in which to live. REMAX Hall of Fame realtor Evan Harrell is a houndsman himself, and he and his team understand your relocation needs as no one else can. With so many things to consider before you move, Evan can help you find just the right location anywhere in the country whenever you decide to go and will even help with the process of selling your present home. And Steve, Remax Elite Realty is based in Franklin, North Carolina. Evan Harrell specializes in residential sales and especially in helping people like us to relocate to the locations we choose anywhere in the United States. Remax has been the leader in residential transactions since 1999 and rated the number one brand in real estate. Evan has been named top producer four years in a row and Chairman's Club recipient in 2018. Contact Evan 
online at evanherrell.com or give him a call at 828-371-5103. You and your hounds will be glad you did. Anyway, and then another study, um, it was just a DNA study. This, this was after all these other ones, and this biologist wanted to kind of get an idea of the relationship of the different lions that are out there, how many of them are related to each other and how. And so they sent me out with a dart gun and, the, and these special darts. You'd shoot the cat and try to get it in a meaty area like in the hip, and it would, it would go in and capture a tissue sample and it would bounce back out. Okay. And Doing a biopsy. you take the tissue sample in. Yep. And uh, uh, I just did that for a year. I don't know. It fizzled out. They, uh, he, didn't, he didn't get enough samples to, to really make enough of an impact to, you know, to uh, determine much. But mm-hmm. uh, And we lost a lot of his darts. Wasn't cost effective. Yeah, it wasn't cost effective. Yeah. But, uh, but anyway, so there, there's been a lot of different ones come and go so that's good work yeah so well, getting, ba- getting, uh, back to, interesting. getting mm-hmm. back to mule deer i mean there's a lot of you hear a lot of information out there there's a lot of uh, studies being done on mule deer right now so you know just could be the in- increase in whitetail numbers that they're competing for for food and habitat i've heard that i've heard that you know there's different organizations doing sagebrush replanting and and different things that that uh, uh, the mule deer depend on for for winter food and and things like that. So you're right; it's complex, and and to be able to sum it up with with one thing, it's just impossible to do it. I mean, have you yeah, thought about throughout the West? There's encroachment of of human activity into mule deer habitat as well. Subdivisions springing up in winter range. Right. Um, yeah, it has an accumulative effect. So, I was talking yeah. to uh, talking to the people, the folks at the Wild Sheep Foundation at the NRA National Convention, and uh, talked to them about predator control and some of the reintroduction areas. And uh, they they're doing a lot of science right now, looking doing a lot of studies and and putting science together and data together on predators' impact on on these wild sheep where they're doing reintroduction. So I thought that was interesting too. Mm-hmm. Have you guys got, uh, are you guys in an area with sheep or? Uh, south of interstate 84, there's California bighorns okay. along the Southern part of the state. And then, uh, North of there are the Rocky mountain bighorns mm-hmm. and yeah, Idaho is a great sheep state. Yeah. If you can get a permit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's... Yeah. There's one permit. The, the premier hunt is down in Unit 11 along Health Canyon, and uh, generally one or two permits per year. And there's over 300 applicants for the one permit. So, yeah, the reason I br- it's a the, tough draw. Yeah. yeah, the reason I brought the sheep thing up is, you know, as houndsmen, we've got to find a way to interact and work with some of these groups to help them. Because if if you know we're willing to come out and and help the wild sheep foundation then we've just made an ally there 
and if we're willing, right. willing to to help in a mule deer study, even though you're out there catching lions, you're doing a mule deer study. You know, you're building an ally there with with people that are have are swinging a bigger stick in this arena than we are at this point. Oh, you know, they really are. Mm-hmm. They really are. So what's your wolf yeah, pop? building those relationships. Mm-hmm. We talk about that a lot, Kevin. We talk about the importance of building those relationships, getting to know those wildlife managers, um, you know, well in advance of so that so that they know who you are. They may even pick up a phone and say, "Hey, Kevin, we're thinking about doing this with hound running in Idaho. What do you think? What's been your experience?" And that that doesn't just happen because uh, you show up when there's a problem. You show up to help, and and you invest your time to help them do their job. We had a, we had a whole uh, podcast yeah. with Joe Condellis and the Western bear foundation and talked about the importance of that. So it's cool to hear that, that there are houndsmen out there that are, you guys are making an investment. I mean, gas isn't free. Equipment's not free. You know, there's wear and tear on, on trucks, your time, everything. And, and you guys are willing oh, to, absolutely. to jump right in the mix. I think that's, that's uh, right. That's really important. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it definitely is. Well, real quick, before we shift gears, we're going to talk about your your uh, your uh, series you're writing on social media. We've talked about that off the phone uh, or off the podcast about uh, uh, some possibilities with that. But uh, what's your wolf population like? What's the wolf situation in southeast Idaho? In southeast Idaho, we don't have a lot. They haven't found a home here yet. It's probably just a matter of time. Um, in the northern region of, of southeast Idaho, like up around Yellowstone, Greater Yellowstone National Park area, there's a lot of wolves. Mm-hmm. Uh, wolves are a problem. And uh, throughout from the Snake River Plain north, there's wolf packs dotted everywhere. Um, known wolf packs. And so uh, whether they're uh, they continue to just increase. Uh, there's there's liberal hunting seasons on them, but hunting seasons haven't seemed to make much of a difference. Um, it's just part of the landscape now. If you're living in those areas and hunting in those areas, you just accept the fact that there's wolves out there, and that, that could be a problem for you. They've really put the hurt on uh, a lot of elk populations in the center, you know, anywhere that they're at, elk and moose actually seem to be susceptible to it they've they've damaged the population right Um, from our perspective it's not a good thing you know others would disagree but um um, they're definitely probably here to stay well i love i've i've always i love idaho's approach to wolves i think you guys were the first state to have it were you the first state to have a wolf season yes yeah Mm mm-hmm but Idaho's mm-hmm. Idaho's overall approach to wildlife management is is uh, pretty awesome. You know, I was in that business for <clears throat> for 28 years, and and uh, I almost took a job out there with Idaho. I actually had an application in, and and uh, when it all came down to it, I couldn't justify the move for for the uh, pay that they were going to pay me and things. So plus, I had 15 years invested here. So overall. Right. You know, probably wouldn't have been the best career move, but but for my spiritual well being, I can see where I, you know, I have some regrets there, for sure. 
Let's yeah, talk- it would have been a great state for you to, to, to be in, you know, in that line of work. But It's not over yet. It's not over yet. Right. Uh, there you go. You know, <laughs> I, may end up, I may end up out there yet. So, hey, let's talk about this Long Walker series you're, you're writing. That thing, it's, that thing's kind of drawn me in. How many chapters of, of, of that is, uh, are, are, have you I'm written just at, I'm just at 10 right now, but I've got them in my head out to about 18. And, and this one, I think I've, I'm done. I, I think of a few more stories. Yeah. So tell us what that is. To interject into it. It's, uh, it's, uh, my wife and my oldest son, Ryan have been after me for quite a while to write things down, to write down these stories mm-hmm. and, uh, and write a book. And I thought, I don't want to write no dang book. You know, I don't want some book about me, you know, and like, okay, here it is in chapter three, and there I am in such and such a canyon and blah, blah, blah. There I was. But, um, uh, there I was. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that's just not me. But um, it started with a story that I wrote about one of the sheep-killing lions that we had caught. And uh, and that flowed pretty good, just, just writing a story about that hunt. And so I thought, well, I can add another, I can add another story to that. And as I'm writing the other story to that, I thought, you know, I could take this back a few years and, and connect it in with this story and that story. And so I started just writing a story about a lion. And this lion's a long walker that travels all around the country. Mm-hmm. And there's different experiences that happen to this lion along the way. But the, the base of all these stories is me. There was something there that I'm connected to on each and every story there's they're they're real stories mm-hmm. um and they might be me or they might be a close friend of mine that it happened to or it may be something that i know of in an area that i hunt you know but but i've got a connection to each and every one of these stories um and basically they're me um i might write it up as somebody different you know but right. it's me <laughs> right and uh so so that's kind of how i'm doing this and uh oh Sometimes the timeline might get skewed a little bit uh, just to make the story fit the cat. But I, re- I realized that I had enough stories that I needed more than one cat to pull this off. Right. So <laughs> I started with a cat, you know, and I had to go back to his mom, you know, and, and when he was born. And then I had to shift back to um, like his grandfather and where his grandfather came right. from. And we're working on his grandfather right now because the main character in our story is stuck in a trap right now in North Hegler Canyon. And that's yeah. where we left him. He's been there for about a month. We need to get him out of there. But uh, <laughs> I shifted back to his father who came out of Canada where the cats get really big, you know, because <laughs> yeah. that's part of the tale, you know. And so here's this kid, really big cat comes wandering down through Montana. That's where he's at right now. And there's this hunter out of Montana that's trying to catch this cat. Well, it's a hunter out of Montana, but it's really me. Anyway, um, and so uh, we're working on him right now. And then I've got some plans for um, what happens to him and then, uh, and then his father emerges and what happens to him. And then we'll get back to, to the subject. But, uh, <clears throat> so it's been pretty interesting, um, walking through all this different stuff. And, uh, but the stories are real. Um, my wife said, so when you get done with this, you know, are you going to write, write another one? And, and I said, well, I don't think I can because I'm using all my good stories on this one. I yeah. said, well, you could just make some up. And I said, well, no, no, you can't make these up. <laughs> like the story about the cat in the 
the little country store in Nass, Idaho, where they took the frozen lion into right. the store to thaw it out so they could skin it while they were having a Nass burger. And the people from the lion study from Earthwatch came walking in and found their collared lion laying there frozen on the floor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the lady comes up to the lion and starts crying, oh, Dorothy, Dorothy. And another one shoot out the hunters and whatnot. Uh, that's a real story. That that actually happened, and no, you can't make that up. Right. So right. Um, <clears throat> so it's been enjoyable. Um, I've got a kick out of it, and it's kind of picked up a bit of a following. It has. Um, I'm not sure Facebook is the place to present it. Um, it probably ought to be more in a blog or <clears throat> in a book or something. Mm-hmm. But um, <clears throat> but uh, that's that's where it is for right now, and. Um, and we'll see where it goes. But I've had a lot of fun with that. As I sit here and talk to you about this, you know, to give I'm, – I'm sitting here by my bookshelf, and I've got a book on the shelf by Alan Eckert. He wrote the book called The Frontiersman, and it's a historical novel. Everything in that novel, it's it's based on, on the Ohio River Valley here and, and Daniel Boone and Simon Kenton and the, the Shawnee during the American Revolution. And uh, Alan Eckert is a, uh, he's a very meticulous historian, but he wrote this book in a way, if you just write the history of it, there's tons of history books out there, but this, the frontiersman tells a story. So he took license to add some, add some things to the book to, to give it entertainment value. And it's just so, so and that that's how I see what you're doing with the long walker is um do you know that this lion is this lion's grandma and this grandfather and not for sure you know maybe not actually but you've got right, you've got all right. these experiences and yeah. hunting in a given area you can assume that certain things you know have have uh, shared common heritage there so yeah, I, I think right. it's extremely enter- entertaining. It's it's. Uh, I always watch for it to come out in the latest edition. I'd like to see you put it in a book. That'd be pretty cool. Be, but I I am glad I started seeing you put copyright on there. You started copywriting the yeah putting copyright <clears throat> right. on it yeah yeah when we realized where this was going I thought, oh, we got to have some protections for this yeah yeah but. Uh, but I'm writing it for the lion hunters, basically, because there's a lot of little subtle things in there that a lion hunter is going to pick up on. You know, like the way the guy's driving down the road and he sees a track out of the corner of his eye and just instinctively stops the truck and bails out of it all in one motion. You know, the lion hunter does that. And anybody that's hunted lions for very long is going to pick up on little things like that. That, uh, uh, And I'm sure all houndsmen would, would enjoy the stories, but... Uh, the lion hunters will know. Yeah, well, I, I can attest to that. You know, I go out and I play around with lion hunting, and I'm I'm riding with a lion hunter. You know, if I see a track, then then I have to. Is that a lion track? And then I have to get out and I've got to look at it. Whereas somebody who lion hunts, they're like, "There's a there's a lion track yeah. right there." And I where? You know, <laughs> you sure that's where? not an elk? You know, and boom, yeah. Yeah. You know, it is, it's, it's uncanny the way that you Western hunters and you lion hunters have, have adapted to that sort of ability to see that. Like you said, it's effortless. It looks, 
it's it's just if you haven't done it if you're an eastern guy like me that's a wannabe lion hunter then do yourself a favor and go hunt with somebody that hunts lions you'll be amazed you'll be amazed yeah so well and there's a story coming up you know we're we're in an era of uh social media where everybody's dog ends at the tree in a perfect pose and you've got the grip and grin photos um but not all not all hunts end that way and there's one coming up that uh, talks about a bad day Mm -hmm. this lion hunter had and uh, don't spoil the story (laughs) i won't just a just a teaser (laughs) kevin yeah i'll leave it at that yeah yeah we just recently released uh (laughs) we just recently released a podcast with brett vaughn uh he's got a youtube channel born 100 years too late and that's one of the reasons or one of the 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 neatest thing about brett is um his ability to he tells the whole story you know and we even talk about the fact that a lot of video shows the start of the track and end at the tree and then you get the grip and grin and yeah you're not telling all the things in between there's a big there's yeah there's a lot a lot of things that have to go right a lot of things there's a lot of story between between those two things so that's why that's right i was glad to hear you say that yeah yeah so we're going to touch on on one of those with the long walker yeah 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 well, Kevin, there's one other thing I was hoping to hoping to talk to you about, and that's your uh, your product line that you have, and that's Dogs Are Treed. And um, are you just operating that mainly off of social media? What is it? Tell us about Dogs Are Treed. We're operating it off social media, <clears throat> yeah, Facebook and Instagram. <clears throat> there's a couple of pages there. Uh, one for Dogs Are Treed, and <clears throat> it actually started with plot dog um i came home well it was the first of february of this year and i just uh, was talking to my wife and and she's always had this entrepreneurial spirit and she's been wanting to get into online sales and whatnot and i had decided that i just wanted my own brand i just wanted a place where i could share stories about these dogs which and this bloodline of dogs which gets back to what we talked about earlier with toto and not promoting him. So I kind of wanted a place where I could promote the dogs that we've got now and what we've done and, and just have our own brand. Mm-hmm. Well, her daughter is a digital graphics design artist, and she also has a t-shirt shop uh, where they do screen printing and embroidery. And so we've talked about a logo for this brand that we want. And for my birthday at the end of March, she surprised me with this logo on a hat and a shirt that is the plot dog logo. And mm-hmm. it was just amazing. It was just awesome. And I'm looking at this and I thought, gosh, we could sell these. And they're like, yeah, we could. And so we started plot dog and, um, people liked it. And, uh, we quickly transitioned to, well, we can't just keep this as plot dog because there's all the other breeds too. And, you know, a Walker guy is not going to buy a hat from plot dogs. You know? <laughs> so, right, right. so we started dogs are treat to be more inclusive to everybody. And actually they've both done well. Uh, dogs are treat has a bit bigger following because there's just a bigger fan base than there would be for just the one breed, mm-hmm. but that's where it came from. And so we've got logos and we've got it on hoodies and 
beanies and t-shirts and and uh, um, on our online shop so you can go to www.dogsretreat.com <laughs> or www.poddog.com and see these things and uh it's actually done quite well considering we haven't even been doing it for a year it's just amazing <clears throat> how well it's done and how well it's been received by the hound hunting community there's really really great people out there in the dog community and it's a great environment to to try to launch something like this and the interesting thing about it is um, the relationships that we've made with customers <clears throat> all across the country with these two shops you know we've we've, we've made friends um, i'm doing this probably in part because of that so and we never saw this we never saw any of this when we started so mm-hmm. we're pretty excited about it <clears throat> yeah yeah yeah, the, yeah uh, we like the stuff, and we want to give good customer service, and and we've been able to do that. And uh, but yeah, but we also want to provide more than that, and that's another reason, like for the long walker story, and that's why they're on those pages, is because we just don't want to post a bunch of hats and t-shirts and say here buy my stuff. You know, we want to be able to offer more than that and give more value to people than just the product. We want to have like a story behind the product. And we want to, you know, be able to offer breeding tips and and uh, anything, you know, just to add more to it than than just a regular shop. So that's kind of where we're going with it. That's and pretty much the story of Houndsman and, XP. And we've had a lot of fun. <clears throat> is that right? Yeah, <clears throat> it re- it really mm-hmm. is, Kevin. Yeah. You know, it sure we have merchandise and things like that that we sell um, that keeps the lights on around here, but. But Steve and I both wanted to add value back to the sport, preserve, protect, and uh, promote the sport. And that's why we talk about things like wildlife conservation. And you know, we all like to hear the stories, and we all like the entertainment part, and we like to hunt. But you know, there's a real need for houndsmen to understand um, – how to how to preserve this sport that we all love so much and and that's why we started this podcast uh to bring to raise levels of awareness so the story of dogs are treed plot dog and plot dogs is is real similar to to why steve and i started the the houndsman xp podcast well that's great and you guys have done a great job with it and i know that it's grown exponentially um it's at quite a rapid growth rate and that's because you're putting out a good product and you're putting out something that everybody can relate to. Well, and you've hit such that. a wide variety of topics, you know, from breeding to training to, you know, actual hunting stories to all the stories about veterans and, and bringing to life, you know, some of the things that, that those heroes have gone through. And, uh, yeah, I think I've listened to everyone and, uh, I've got something out of, out of all of them. Well, I appreciate so. it. I appreciate Hopefully it. someone gets something out of this one. <laughs> oh, I'm sure this has been a this has been a great podcast. I'm telling you, uh, you're a natural on you know being able to to tell stories and and um, been a great guest. So, have you got any closing thoughts? Anything we need to talk about? Anything we we said we were going to talk about that I've overlooked here, Kevin? Well, we'd like to be able to support uh, the Houndsman XP podcast in some way, and. Um, so uh, so how about if we throw a um how about if we throw a coupon code out at you 
to be used on either one of our websites, and we donate 10% of the sales back to the Houndsman XP con, um, podcast through December 31st. Lay it on me, that. man. The, the, code, the code would be <laughs> HXP20. HXP20. And we'll post that as well. Uh, that is very um, – we did not why, so. We did not discuss this beforehand. So you no, take, we did not, you, no. Well, me. I'm reading this off a note that my wife just gave me, so we'll give Nancy the credit for this one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but well, uh, we'll post something on that as well, and we'll make a donation on, on every sale from now through December 31st to the podcast and see if we can help you guys out a little bit and keep this thing going. That's awesome, Kevin. I Tell your wife that I appreciate it. Okay. For we sure. Love <laughs> we love you. <laughs> She's my biggest fan. There so, you go. Yeah. There Talk you go. about needing relationships to keep all this going there. She is. Yeah. <laughs> yep. I'm the yep. website builder. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, we appreciate you very much. Um, okay. Well, thanks for having me on. It's been, it's been enjoyable. Well, that's is my pleasure, Kevin, and um, I'll be out that way in in January. So I'll be coming right up fifteen, and coming real close to Pocatello. I'd like to to meet up with you and and you know actually shake your hand, meet you, and and who knows, maybe we can share some time time in the woods together. Okay, sounds good. Yep, we'll make that happen. Well, we always have a way of closing out our podcast here. And Kevin, um, Steve usually has the honors on this, but like I said, he's in the coon hunting Navy this week and unavailable. But, uh, you know, if I come out there and there's, there are, um, there's a line track going off into this Canyon and we're going to put some dogs down on it. And I'm not going to promise you that my dogs are going to go the right way. So I think the best advice that we can have here is Kevin, you follow your hounds and I'll follow mine. <laughs>